Navarro Song of Ice and Fire read-through, John 9 in A Game of Thrones, and outro to Game of Thrones, John. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You probably know me from the internet at Lies and Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, and at liesandarborgold.com. And I'm another one of your hosts, Eliana, and you might know me as Glass Table Girl over on the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit on the Maester Monthly Podcast, or maybe as Arithmetric over on Twitter. So, 51, we passed the big landmark, which was also our one-year anniversary episode that we did together with Joe Magician. Thank you for joining us, who also has, uh, since then, been inspired and put out a video about the choice that John has to make in the show. Yes, choosing has always hurt. Absolutely, it's a great piece. I implore you to check it out. Link will be down in the cut below in the details. We had a great anniversary. Really, we did. We, uh, we, I enjoyed a Game of Thrones episode. That was a landmark for our one year. Absolutely. Uh, Eliana, did you enjoy your anniversary present from me, which was no episode last week? I did. You also sent me another anniversary present. You guys... Did I tell everyone about this? I don't know. Chloe sent me a Mushu tumbler that I brought yes. to Ice and Fire Con. And she also sent a Jon Snow. I keep wanting to call it a Jon Snoo, but the snoos are the thing on Reddit. A, a Jon <laughs> Snow on the Iron Throne Funko Pop. Yeah, I'm a good Yeah, friend. she is. So, <laughs> um, yeah, probably. And she's a good cat owner, you know? Thank yep. you, thank you. And hey, they work for me. They're oh, not just true. like owned by my me. Bad. You know, I mean, marketing You're executives. You're a good cat boss. Allison, the executive producer. Jake, the uh, Jaharis. Yep. Jake, Jacob. You know, his three names. Yeah, we're mixing. <laughs> we're mixing up the different ja, ja yes. Targaryens. Targaryens. Not only am I a uh, fruitful, loving podcast co-host with gifts we also have another gift for you patrons this month we have decided on our episode we had one plan we decided to change our minds for another we are doing an episode about prophecy yeah this month fuck the dance we'll get back to that eventually <laughs> we're like do we do the dance uh we, we're free women we, right we now. are you know and big men will never rule <laughs> girls god can it <laughs> oh my god yeah so patrons five dollars and up you will get access toward the end of the month to an episode about prophecy all about prophecy uh different places that have religions that worship and have different prophecies you have the many different faces of prophecy that you will be hearing about so stay tuned for that we will likely tell you Without further ado, before we hit John 9 in A Game of Thrones, we are going to step into our lightning round where we talk about the chapters between John 8 and John 9 very briefly. Yes, so our lightning round kicks off with Daenerys 7. After Khal Drogo conquers the city, Daenerys demands they release their spoils, including Miri Mazdor, who tends to Drogo's wound. MVP, MVP, uh, Tyrion 8. Assigned under Gregor Clegane's command with his men in the vanguard, Tyrion has Bronn fetch him a companion before the war. He's awakened to fight in the Battle of the Green Fort. Catelyn, 10. Rob ambushes the Lannister armies and brings Jamie Lannister as a hostage to the camp, but suffers losses in the way. Daenerys, 8. A cow who cannot ride is no cow at all. Miri Mazdor practices blood magic on Khal Drogo as Jorah fights the remaining blood riders to death. Daenerys begins to hemorrhage. 
Arya 5, Arya watches her father confesses treason after chasing pigeons into which Ned Stark has warged, which is why oh he's God. still alive, and Yorin stops her from reaching him when the sword falls. He also warged into the sword. I've ruined this chapter. You, honestly, it was a nice little <laughs> lightning round, little summary, and you just, you're the mm-hmm. devil. Betrayal. <laughs> Betrayal. Betrayal. <gasps> Brand 7. Bran and Rickon dream of their father in the crypts. Sansa 6. Sansa is forced to look at her father's head by Joffrey and then contemplates throwing him off the wall. Daenerys 9. Danny must mercy kill Cal Drogo due to the cost of Miri's magic, and her baby is born stunted and twisted. Tyrion 9. Tywin dispatches Tyrion to act as Joffrey's hand, and Tyrion decides to bring Shay along. John 9. Overview. John is prepared to honor his family, and he attempts to desert the Night's Watch. He only gets as far as Molestown before his sworn brothers catch up with him and chillingly remind him of his vows. Mm-hmm. It's not that chillingly. I don't know. It's the cutest moment in the books, in my opinion, or one of them. I think it's beautiful, and we're going to get yeah. there and discuss why it's beautiful. But first, before we get to that end of chapter... John has to leave, so we start with John preparing to leave Castle Black to go south and help his family with the wars to come. Ghost is with him, and Neville Longbottom tries to stop him as he reaches the door of the common room. Sorry, I meant Sam. It's Sam. Sam, everyone. (laughs) And like Neville, you know, he fails. I thought that this was interesting language. It says, Samuel Tarly stood in the stable door, a full moon peering over his shoulder. He threw a giant shadow immense in black. And it kind of reminds me of this line that we get at the very first chapter of John's in this book. And actually, John's first chapter ever, whatever. Where, when he opened the door, the light from within threw his shadow clear across the yard, and for just a moment, Tyrion Lannister stood tall as a king. And, like, there are so many people who talk about, like, Tyrion's shadow being large, and, like, there are a lot of passages that nail that home, too. And often this is linked to the influence that he's going to have in this story, especially in Clash. Other people theorize it means other things, but we're not talking about that right now, alright? And I do think it's interesting that Sam also casts a giant shadow here. It feels as though this idea of big shadows is something that George plays with in terms of showing, like, hey, this person is going to be an important political player, because we do see that Sam kind of does that from the shadows as well, like, in A Storm of Swords towards the end, where he's like, yeah, I'm gonna fix this election, whatever. And, you know, like, varies in Littlefinger, Sam could end up being some sort of player who very much pulls the strings of others, but more for good, hopefully, because it's Sam, and he's Neville Longbottom. (laughs) We are seeing Sam even in the adaptation to TV, uh, sorry, the original <laughs> content that was made for TV that the books were created off of, Game of Thrones. Uh, I love Game of Thrones. So uh, Sam, though, in the show has some plots like that in the current season, even for a second. Yeah. There, you know, you start to think, like, are you plotting Sam? So I love this idea that Sam wasn't politically inept. Yeah. Uh, he grew up just like Sansa. You know, Sansa doesn't wield a sword. Sansa doesn't fight. But she grew up and learned politics and even though his father hated him and thought he was craven and stupid and tortured him, Sam still absorbed some of that and he knows how to play this mini game that has started at Castle Black. And he says as much to John when John is angry about being made a steward instead of a ranger. He's like, uh, my dad used to have me sit here to learn about politics. And so he knows these things. Yeah, exactly. 
So John's horse leaps over Sam. Sam stumbles aside. John leaves. He gets past Sam. He hoped Sam hadn't hurt himself falling like that. He was so heavy and so ungainly, it would be just like him to break a wrist or twist his ankle getting out of the way. Chill the fuck out, John. I warned him, John said aloud. It was nothing to do with him anyway. He flexed his burned hand as he rode, opening and closing the scarred fingers. They still pained him, but it felt good to have the wrappings off. This kind of tells you how much time has passed mm-hmm. since the white fight. The white fight? Oh, um, that's weird. White fight night? White fight night? Uh, white fight night? Aren't they? A lot of them are. Uh, yeah, this is, you know, how much time has happened between that fight with the whites. And, of course, he kind of blames it like, oh, it'd be just like Sam to break a wrist or twist his ankle getting out of the way. But also, it, as angry as he is, he's obviously showing, of course he cares about him. Of course he cares about what happens to Sam. Of course he's worried. Yeah. Like, he tried to protect him for the past, like, several months. Yeah. They're brothers. Which we'll be reminded of later. He plans to get as far south as possible before anyone knows he's gone, you know, except for Sam, who clearly knows. And he knows that J.R. Mormont's going to wake up at first light, so he's really planning his time carefully. And he decided to leave Longclaw in his cell because he felt like that's, like, a bad move. He feels unworthy to take it after taking... After betraying Jaor, that seemed a poor way to repay him for his trust, but it couldn't be helped. No matter what he did, John felt as though he were betraying someone. I like that this becomes the underlying rhythm in John's story. He's always trying to cater to these people around him, whether they're mentors, his father, living up to this image of what he should be. Mm -hmm. And he gets kind of caught up in his lost identity, as we see a lot in Clash of Kings and in A Storm of Swords. Sometimes the reason I don't always resonate with John, probably as much as I vibe with characters like Sansa or some of the other different characters, like the strong personalities as this book, is John doesn't know who he is either, mm-hmm. right? Like, he doesn't know who he is and he gets lost in it. But we do know who he is and we see that. It doesn't matter what his blood lineage is. John is loyal. He wants to, you know, go where he wasn't allowed to. He's always wanted to be a Stark yeah. And he never got to. And this was his chance. This is his one I want song right here. He wants to belong and he wants family. Yeah. And he's choosing the wrong thing if he wants that. But whatever. I also like the subtle shade at Jorah Mormont in this. So he's like, even Jorah didn't take it. And that guy sucked. So I definitely can't take <laughs> it. Paraphrased, of course. And John doesn't know if he's done the right thing. He thinks that maybe the Southern Gods are, like, way easier because then people just listen to their septons and their songs and they know what to do because, I don't know, the priests-ish things kind of, like, guide them. Tell them. Yeah, and he's like, but the old gods didn't speak. Yeah, I I love that parallel that the old gods don't speak and, of course, then there's Ghost who's also mute and quiet and looks like the old gods, the weird ones. Yeah, it's kind of funny, I guess... I don't know that the the new gods are any easier than the old gods, you know, which uh, mm-hmm. it seemed like a kind of gruesome religion, too, in its own way. If any of these gods are real, I mean, I, the old gods, I feel like I could see, I could understand. I mean, they're kind of like the nature gods in a way. Yeah. But the new gods kind of sound like shams, Eliana. Kind of sound like shams. They do. Um, maybe that's my Catholic guilt, but... Maybe. I think if any of them are real, it's obviously the many-faced god. Like, that's obviously a real thing. 
John thinks about how he has to find new clothes, and he has to do that soon. He's planning to steal them from somewhere because he knows he can't return to Winterfell. He can't return to anywhere, especially wearing black clothing. A stranger wearing black was viewed with cold suspicion in every village and holdfast north of the Neck. And men would soon be watching for him. I love that we open the series, even on TV, with, you know, the deserter from the Night's Watch, right? You open with that image of someone riding south from the north. And it's a great close to John's arc in this book. It reminds me a little bit of that Joe Magician Death of the Ranger magic we were talking about last mm-hmm. week. But it gets echoed with John's eventual death for desertion, kind of, as well. Both of these right here are from Beheadings. And John's eventual desertion comes, of course, after that beheading with Jano Slint. Mm-hmm. I just feel like there's a lot that happens. A beheading happens, someone rides south. Boom. Lots of action. I think that's such a great parallel. I didn't like, I didn't really think about that. I, that's so good. And very much also echoes how now John's like, I gotta steal clothes. And it's like how Ned Stark warns that any man who's a deserter of the Night's Watch is a desperate man and will do anything. Right now, John's starting to go down that path just a little. You see how slippery it is. But I also think it's funny that, like, at no point does John think, like, until it happens later on in this chapter, but he's like, <laughs> Yeah, I gotta get new clothes, but what do you do about the giant wolf? Like, the giant wolf is a bigger giveaway, I think, of who you are if, like, people are sending out notices of, like, Yeah, Ned Stark's bastard with a wolf has escaped. <laughs> no one could spot. possibly figure it yeah. out. Uh, who could figure it out? Yeah, everyone just has a pet wolf that's, like, the size of you. That's normal. (laughs) Whatever, John. As much as John doesn't want to think about Winterfell, he he can't not. Of course he's thinking about Mm -hmm. it. He thinks about its granite walls, thinks about its memories, and I love this passage. Even now, John could not decide whether the maester had stayed because he was weak and craven or because he was strong and true. Yet he understood what the old man had meant about the pain of choosing. He had understood that all too well. Tyrion Lannister had claimed most men would rather deny a hard truth than face it, but John was done with denials. He was who he was. Jon Snow, bastard and oathbreaker, motherless, friendless, and damned. For the rest of his life, however long that might be, he would be condemned to be an outsider, the silent man standing in the shadows who dares not speak his true name. Wherever he might go throughout the Seven Kingdoms, he would need to live a lie, lest every man's hand be raised against him. But it made no matter, so long as he lived long enough to take his place by his brother's side and help avenge his father. He remembered Rob as he had last seen him, standing in the yard with snow melting in his auburn hair. John would have to come to him in secret, disguised. He tried to imagine the look on Rob's face when he revealed himself. His brother would shake his head and smile, and he'd say, he'd say, what a passage. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to break down in that. I feel like anyone that's watching the current seasons of Game of Thrones, season eight, uh, probably has a lot to say about this passage, right? It's right there. Oh, yeah. It's interesting. Very on the nose. Yes. Uh, Very on the nose. I love this line that he was who he was. Jon Snow, bastard and oathbreaker, motherless, friendless, and damned. But at the end of this chapter, I mean, especially those of us that are on a reread, I'm sure you can gander that, like, that's exactly who Jon isn't. Mm-hmm. If show canon is true, Jon's not a bastard. Jon's not an oathbreaker. He did what he did. 
uh, going south was not right. And he comes back, as we know, his friends bring him back. But he has friends. He had a mother. He's not damned. Jon Snow like ends up as this huge hero of our story. But that line is just so solemn and just speaks volumes of what Jon thinks of himself. And it, it shows what Jon is at the very beginning of this book and what Jon will become by the end of it. I also like don't mean to break up this moment, but it, I mean, we see in this chapter even that he is not friendless nor damned. Mm-hmm. He has really, really good friends. It, it's just so funny that he ends that line on and damned. And I'm like, okay, John. <laughs> okay, baby boy. Chill out. But to bring it full circle with a lot of the Shakespearean mm-hmm. ideas, I mean, John probably is damned, right? He's going to have to make a lot of hard choices, sure. especially in The Winds of Winter when he comes back to life eventually, I'm guessing, and uh, A Dream of Spring as well. Oh, absolutely. I also uh, really liked this one line within this passage as well of wherever he might go throughout the Seven Kingdoms, he would need to live a lie lest every man's hand be raised against him. It's as you were saying, in terms of, you know, if you watch this season of Game of Thrones, the issues that John has to deal with, especially as he's like, all right, so who am I? And at first, for a second, he is like, yeah, I'm going to live a lie. I'm Jon Snow and not Aegon Targaryen, right? Uh, no, he's Ned Stark, more like. Yeah, exactly. And this is something that Ned Stark has had to do for the past 15 years, live a lie. But, you know, in a way, also, this is Jon's life. He, without knowing for the past 15 years in the books, was living a lie or else... There would be people's hands raised against him and people's hands raised for him, even though he didn't want that. He would be just like a baby. Yeah, and we see a lot of that playing off in, you know, some of the northern plots in A Dance with Dragons. Uh, People that are utilizing Arya's claim and people that are trying to utilize Rickon's claim as well. Yes. Uh, that, That whole idea of having an identity and having an important identity in this country is very hard in Westeros. Yeah, and and of course in Sansa's storyline as well, as she as the people just stack stack titles on her. Yeah, it is not, you know, no one will ever marry me for love. It is my claim they mean to wed. Poor Sansa. And then John remembers what Ned taught his sons about people who deserve from the Night's Watch and re- wonders, you know, what would Rob say? Like, would Rob actually welcome me home? And he wonders what Rob would do in the context of what would Ned Stark do? And if it were Benjamin Stark coming to Ned as a deserter. And then John thinks, mm. like, maybe Rob would welcome me? Like, he had to, or else. And it's like... I do think that this is a good question because as we talk about Ned living alive for the past few years, what would Ned Stark do? Because this is the man, right, we see at the beginning, he takes the Night's Watch, which is so hard to make the Night's Watch, like, possessive because you say Night's Watch He would have to kill Benjen. He would have to, right? But at the same time, like, Ned Stark is the man who puts the family before honor and duty over and over again. With, like, all of his secrets and lies. So I don't know. I think this is a question. This is a hard one. This should be the debate, the uh, mock trial at Ice and Firecon 2020. Yeah. Or, yeah. I was going to say we could ask George. But I think there were other things that I needed to ask George first. They were Uh, all unimportant. Yeah, you have, like, eight questions. They they were not. They're all important. They're all unimportant, but also important. (laughs) You know, human heart in conflict with itself. Oh, my God. John tries to put that thought out of his mind, and that's a big part of what he says. He had to, or else, or else it meant none of them had ever loved him at all. Oh, like that's the way that sentence right. ends, right? That, that is like what they weren't his mm-hmm. family. He's afraid 
that they're not his family and that he truly does have no one in this world because John is feeling alone at this point and he wants to kind of like run to whatever glimpse of family he has left. Uh, being a man must be really hard <laughs> in your teenage years. I don't know. Uh, he thinks he wants to die, and I love this, it's very Theon, with a sword in hand, fighting the Stark's enemies. And he thinks, I'm not a real Stark, anyways. And Ghost is also here, by the way, your good boy. I just want to put that out there. Uh, uh, On the page, it's very cheap and easy to put him in a scene. Yeah, he's somewhere, you know, out there hunting. somewhere. Doing ghost things. Doing good boy things. And then, yeah, as you said, it's very reminiscent of Theon uh, wanting to die with a sword in his hand, especially Theon when he's Reek. And it tells you so much about how these young men have, like, idolized what it means to be a warrior and how they've internalized all of these songs themselves. It's not just, like, the girls or Sansa who have internalized these ideas of songs. It's the boys as well and that idea of what is honor and also that there's honor in dying in battle it's it's framed very much as a hero's death. But John learns in this chapter that there are other ways to find honor. Yeah, and I do want to also comment on top of that, like, it's not just the boys of the series, right? Like, yes, it's Bran. Yes, it's John. Yes, it's these males that, like, want to be as brave as the men in the songs and the true knights of history. And they have a lot to live up to of these war heroes. But it's also, like, the adults. It's Jamie. It's Sandor. Mm. It's all these men who, as children, wanted to be knights and got lost along the way. Yes. And I do love how George handles some of this with the males in the story. I think it's a really great look at masculinity. Yeah, it is. Especially, you know, with this little male order. John arrives in Molestown, and much of it is just underground tunnels. The sex workers get called buried treasures because of those underground tunnels. John thinks about how this is also oath-breaking, but it's only frowned upon very gently at the wall. You know, it's not a oath-breaking like leaving on a horse. That's that's deserting. That's also like, here's the deal is you can go have sex and break your vows, but you come back to work at the end of the day, which also talks about like this whole thing that I was thinking about with capitalism and like our society and how 40 hours a week used to be like the jumping point, right? Like that was like, you can work up to 40 hours a week and still live a healthy lifestyle as a human being with like mental, emotional and regular things. And like now it's like a jumping point. Now it's like at least 40 hours normal people work. Anyways, uh, they make you swear and swear was my point here that- this is just a moment where John's just like, this is so hypocritical as fuck. Like, what? It is, but at the same time, it's one of those weird loopholes, I th- I think. I don't know. I It is considered oath-breaking, and J.R. Mormont says this much later, but I guess they're not technically taking them as wives, but it is still breaking the spirit. Mm. It's breaking the spirit of the oath, and that's why it is oath-breaking. So wait, are you saying you support loopholes, Eliana? No, I'm, I'm, I'm not. Surprised. I'm not. I'm saying- You don't support loopholes. I'm saying that mm. that's why it's considered oath-breaking, because it's breaking the spirit of it. We'll get to this later, everyone. Okay, so John's hand keeps hurting throughout this chapter, and I know it's the last person you'd think to draw a direct comparison to John, but it reminds me a lot of Catelyn after Bran is attacked, and she's attacked by the assassin because she has very little mobility in her hand, and she thinks about it very often. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously people have discussed the other parallels before, and we've talked about Ned's hurting knee before i think in in these chapters and it's like in this book i mean ned's dead now but whatever during ned's chapters we talked a lot about how ned's leg would always hurt when he was feeling like really stressed out or annoyed in king's landing and i think that first of all there's something 
maybe going on here i don't know I, I i'd have to like actually read into it i'm just throwing this idea out there without doing much research on it but i wonder if like in storm it seems as though maybe john flexes his hand and thinks about it especially while he's in hiding with the wildlings and then whenever people talk yes. to him about like oh blah 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 you're with us now and then he's like flexing his sword hand he's like oh they can't know the truth that in my heart i'm a man of the night's watch I'm like okay um he also tends to flex it in like dance for example mm. he flexes it whenever he's making a hard decision yes it's a very ned like thing during the pink letter for example he's flexing his hand trying to figure out what he's gonna do and he thinks about like your sister and you know Ned just died and John's hand hurts, you know, his hand gets yeah. hurt and Ned dies. He was the hand. He's the hand. Yeah. Yep, you know. Love it. Cute cute shit. Cute things. Lots Maybe of stark pain cute. happening yeah. right now. Yep. So there's a stream past the village. John takes that area and he rests upon it. He calls Ghost to him, but Ghost is taking a while. Yes, and then I don't know. I think this is because like in the past episode, as we can see, of Game of Thrones, sorry if you're not caught up, I'm going to say, John is a bad dog owner, and that's why he doesn't know where his fucking dog is right now. Whatever. Eliana. Anyways. Anyways. <laughs> um, John's like, alright, I'll just have this nice-ass breakfast while I wait for my dog to show up. And then he starts to hear hoofbeats. Yeah, he starts to recognize his friends' voices. We hear a lot of bickering in this passage. Yes. So at first, we don't know who the voices are. Um, and I do like the way this is written, because at first, it just starts out with like, random dialogue, unassigned dialogue, and people speaking. And then you have like people going, in the dark, stupid, if you didn't fall off your horse and break your neck, you'd get lost and wind up back at the wall when the sun came up. And then it goes into like, I would not, Gren, sounded peeved, I just ride south, you can tell south by the stars. And then it says, what if the sky was cloudy? Pip asked, because I just like, like that because George has written it in such a way that he's showing us without that without seeing and without John being like he looked around and saw his friends there right by just putting mm -hmm. in like this person said this it's telling us John recognizes these voices and now yeah. we know who is there it's a lot of those context clues and it's an educated like oh that makes sense it's his friends coming to find him and it speaks volumes like you said it it fills in several paragraphs and it's nice because especially in chapters like this, you have to be very careful with how you pepper things in, I feel like. And that wasn't cheesy and it was nice. Mm -hmm. It also reminds you of who his friends are and what they're like. And uh, how Gr Grun and Pip are adorable. And of course, immediately, John is like, damn it, Sam, because Sam went and got all of their friends who, of course, would ride after him. And he's like, in his head, well, they're all going to be seen as deserters now. Like, why would you do this? Which, that's not how it works, John, but that's fine. Obviously, we know who probably was behind it all. Mm -hmm. And Ghost, of course, the good boy that he is, betrays John <laughs> by coming out and his presence shows up. Uh, you can just imagine. It's like, I don't know. Thing. Ghost shows up. He's like, what's up, guys? Oh, <laughs> is something happening here? <laughs> oh, and then John calls Ghost a traitor. Irony. I'm like, John, is Ghost a traitor or are you the traitor as a bad dog owner? Anyways. Abandoner. I know. God. So after this ensues what's probably like the cutest exchange back and forth in A Song of Ice and Fire, John is all, I don't want to hurt you. Stay back. And they're like, there's seven of us, John. Also seven. Yep. John, you idiot. <laughs> and then John's like, I have to go down to be with my brothers. And they're like, we're your brothers now. Yeah, John. Yeah. He yeah. He starts to try to, like, say, they murdered my father. 
And Sam's like, I already told him. Like, <laughs> you're a little late, buddy. Yeah, and then Pip is like, you said the words, and then he starts saying the oath, and then everyone says the oath around him, and John's just cursing at them. You can tell that he, I, I think it's hilarious, because on one hand, he's like probably like, oh my fucking god, why are they <laughs> doing this to me? But at the same time, it's a beautiful, okay? Yeah, and- it does show like how John is still in that mindset of the rules don't apply to me, though. Like, he thought oh. it was just like, okay, that he just left the Night's Watch, and that's like, these guys don't have that. And John's out there like, I don't have a place to go, like, other than the Night's Watch. And it's like, okay, but you were ready to leave the Night's Watch for everything with no place to go. Like, you're not looking at, these other people don't have anywhere to go, dude. Yeah, they really don't. Like, Sam was literally kicked out. That's what it looks like when you're kicked out of your house. Okay, John. <laughs> and then Pip's like, all right, well, you're gonna, either you're gonna have to kill me then, or you're gonna come back with me. What a good friend. Oh, mm-hmm. Pip. And then John is over here. He's still like miffed at Ghost when he reluctantly decides, all right, fine, I'm going to go back with you. Because obviously he's See, not going to kill Pip. he's a petty pet owner, Eliana. <laughs> he's a dick. That's not how you treat your pets. Uh, it's <sighs> really I do not. love, this is like one of the best parts in the end of the book, past Ned being beheaded. It's like chilling. I love when the, the show repeated this in Watchers for the Walls. Don't know. Oh. Or Watchers of the Walls. Yeah, yeah. So they hurry back to Castle Black together before they all get into trouble. They sneak back into the common room of Gryffindor. And John thinks, They could take him back, John told himself, but they could not make him stay. The war would not end on the morrow or the day after, and his friends could not watch him day and night. He would bide his time, make them think he was content to remain here. And then... When they had grown locks, he'd be off again. Oh, John. Yes, thank you. Oh, John. I do it for you. Uh, Sam's Sam's happy. Yeah, Yeah. he's happy. He's like, good, take this bitch back to bed. Yeah, and then no one actually gets a good night's sleep this night because of fucking John. And the next morning, John's like bringing breakfast to Lord Mormont. And then I've learned in this scene that Lord Mormont is a fancy bitch and he wants Mm -hmm. lemon in his water. And I just really need to call this out to everyone because I'm realizing this is my character analysis for you right now that Lord Commander Jer Mormont... I don't know if you've all noticed, he's very particular. Oh, damn. Chloe's a fancy bitch, too. <laughs> her water also has a lemon in it. Are you, are you, Jerry Mormont? LC. LC Mormont? Yes, I think as, so. As the, uh, as the youths call him. The youths. <laughs> <laughs> or the old people, more like. I know, they're both older than us, but whatever. Anyways, um... Yeah, Jair's always giving very specific instructions about his drinks to John, and I'm just like, Jair Mormont is a Westerosi mixologist. That's the analysis. <laughs> I love this next passage. He reminds John of when he told him the things yes. we love destroy us every time, but in reference to Ned's death. But, of course, we were told this the first time about Jorah Mormont, who sucks. But yeah. And then turns out the whole time... Eamon had actually warned Jerry Mormont that, like, John's gonna run. Yeah, absolutely. He he used that talk with him in John 8 to figure out where John stood. And of course he knew. Look at him. But yes. <laughs> I, I do love the passage. And it's a long-ass passage. We've only chosen some parts of it to discuss, particularly because this part of it refers to the most adorable part of the series. So, the old bear snorted. <laughs> Do you think they chose me, Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, because I'm dumb as a stump, though? Eamon told me you'd go. I told him you'd be back. 
I know my men, and my boys, too. Honor set you on the king's road, and honor brought you back. My friends brought me back, John said. Did I say it was your honor? Mormont inspected his plate. They killed my father. Did you expect me to do nothing? If truth be told, we expected you to do just as you did. Mormont tried a plum, spit out the pit. I ordered a watch kept over you. You were seen leaving. If your brothers had not fetched you back, you would have been taken along the way and not by friends. Unless you have a horse with wings like a raven. Do you? No. John felt like a fool. Pity. We could use a horse like that. John stood tall. He told himself that he would die well. That much he could do at the least. I know the penalty for desertion, my lord. I'm not afraid to die. Die! The raven cried. Nor live, I hope, Mormont said, cutting his ham with a dagger and feeding a bite to the bird. You have not deserted yet. Here you stand. She said the thing. <laughs> if we beheaded every boy who rode to Molestown in the night, only ghosts would guard the wall. Yet maybe you mean to flee again on the morrow or a fortnight from now. Is that it? Is that your hope, boy? John kept silent. <sighs> I thought so. Mormont peeled the shell off a boiled egg. Not uh, easy. Uh, boiled oh, egg. oh, oh, an egg. He just peeled the shell off of a boiled egg. Wow. Now kill the egg and let the... Oh my god, keep going. <laughs> Your father is dead, lad. Do you think you can bring him back? No, he answered, sullen. Good. We've seen the dead come back, you and me, and it's not something I care to see again. He ate the egg. Oh. He ate the egg in two bites and flicked a bit of shell out from between his teeth. Your brother is in the field with all the power of the north behind him. Any one of his lord's bannermen commands more swords than you'll find in all the night's watch. Why do you imagine that they need your help? Are you such a mighty warrior? Or do you carry a grumpkin in your pocket to magic up your sword? Oh my god, that's such a great line because it's There's like so we get so much there. Arya has that line in the Brotherhood in A Star of Swords where she stares at Thoros oh. and she says, could you bring back a man without a head? Just the once, not six times, could you? But at the same time, this brings right back into Stannis even in Jon's arc, right? Stannis mm. with Lightbringer. Are you such a mighty warrior? You know, po a grump get in your pocket to magic up your sword. But of course... As we know, John is the product of Rhaegar and Lyanna. I mean, the prince that was promised was supposed to come from that line. I'm just saying. Yeah. There's just a lot of things in this passage. Um, I love that you called out that Arya scene, mostly because it's not the cutest scene in the books. It's actually one of the saddest, <laughs> in my opinion. I'm like, no! Can you break that back? But anyways... <laughs> Like, uh, amongst those other things that are call-outs, like, the having the horse with wings, like, obviously we need something a little more useful than a fucking, like, pegasus, <laughs> right? But this idea of an animal that can carry you with wings does appear by the end of this book. Dragons. Mm, ah. Yes, uh, very soon. Indeed. Like, in, like, two, three chapters. We're right there, everyone. Literally two chapters. Yeah, but not right there yet. 
Mm. Uh, and then Jor asks John to have the courage to live and I think that this is interesting right um, and maybe I'm just like colored by also my experience of this recent season of Game of Thrones where Beric Dondarrion says live to, to Arya <laughs> and it's just like is John gonna have that will or desire to live like even when shit gets tough as it does in dance and, and maybe when he's brought back from the dead I don't know it's a, gonna be something that he's gonna have to do and, and then I also like how much of the story is revealed in the dialogue, like, J.R. speaks of John's, sure, John's honor regarding his family and wanting to, like, do his duty to them is what put him on the King's Road. And then, like, that it's his friend's honor that saved him and that there's more than one kind of way for honor to exist. And then, of course, J.R. was counting on having honorable men on the watch, like men who like Sam Tarley, who'd bring back someone who's like a runaway John because they knew like apparently I love how we find out like they knew he was gonna fucking go of course he loves his family you know whether they love him or not he doesn't know he's not sure of but he loves them and that's the only place he ever had and he feels alone at the wall and I want to point out this passage it just reminds me of course of Harry Potter of uh, Sorcerer's Stone a Philosopher's Stone There are all kinds of courage, said Dumbledore, smiling. It takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to our enemies, but just as much to stand up to our friends. And it also reminds me, of course, of the patriarch Ned Stark that, you know, when can a man be brave? Mm -hmm. Can a man be brave when he's afraid? It's the only time a man could be brave. Eliana, that's it. Yes. And, And all of them put, like, their fucking lives on the line for John. Ten yeah. points to House Tarly, but only to Sam, because fuck Randall Tarly. <laughs> Ten I, points to Gryffindor. I also like, uh, and another thing regarding houses, <laughs> I just like the here you stand from Jeremormont. So great. Perfect, perfect punctuation. I know in the pilot Game of Thrones season one, episode one, episode, you know, they diminished some of the, the episode, especially because the language was too flowery, but... Mm. In here it works. Yes, it's cheesy to have each character say their house words all the time, but I like it. I'm, I'm a cheese ball. I'm into it. Yeah, they, they're fine with them saying winter's coming all the time, though. But it, it's very much like, you know, you're saying the flower language. Like, I would be a little like, how he glimmered. I'd kind of raise eyebrows and be like, okay. And damned. Everyone's so dramatic. Well, and I think that's where some of these shows, like, it's where you buffer that line between, yeah. like, the CW and HBO. You know? I love... Okay, there are a lot of great shows on the CW right now, as I've discussed before, such as Riverdale and uh, Jane the Virgin. Anyways. That's true, that's true. I'm just saying. Yeah, for sure. Jane the Virgin actually has character development, unlike Charlotte. Never mind. Uh, Jer Mormont then goes on to talk about his family. You know, here we stand. And that he would not actually leave the wall for his sisters, even though he loves them. John's like, I have nowhere. We do get confirmation this chapter, the only place in the series that this is Mage's brother. Jor went to the wall, so I love that because we obviously don't really have that primogeniture takeover for the female secession in many other places in the North. Not not often, not often held besides, you know, like Barbary being the widow of House Dustin, basically, and House there at House Riswell as one of the advisors. But I, I just think it's cool to see that the Mormonts don't give a fuck. That's one thing that's always been true. They just don't care. They, they are don't. who they are. Yeah. Whether, you know, not giving a fuck means being a fuck boy or just cool, like the women yeah. of House Mormont. Everybody except Jorah is what we're saying. Yes, that's pretty much what we mean. <laughs> 
good night to everyone in House Mormont except for Jorah Mormont. Yes. Do not talk him in. No. I have no place, John wanted to say. I'm a bastard. I have no rights, no name, no mother, and now not even a father. The words would not come. I just wanted us to have that line in here. Did I did I nail it for you? You did. He's so dramatic. Thank I just you. love how dramatic John is. Oh yeah, little bitch. I love him. I do. Um, JR then reveals that actually, so now that we're here, a lot of rangers have gone missing this year, not just Benjamin. And then in the background, the, the raven is squeaking, Ben! Jen! And I, I, I love it. Sorry. I think <laughs> it's hilarious. I, it's hilarious. He goes, Ben! Jen! Ben! <laughs> Jen! They're like, he slits above us two words. So funny. It makes me think of Ben 10, but it's nothing like that at all. Anyway. Thanks for your Mormont starts talking about the important war on the other side of the wall, uh, and that John's heritage as a Stark and his wolf would be important for it, and he believes John is here for a reason. And I, I just love that. It, it it really cements, especially in this chapter, that like this closes the first book. However, it starts off this launching pad for the mystical things in John's plot and John's mm-hmm. role as a hero of the story. Oh, absolutely. And, like, part of being a hero, right, is making difficult choices. And that's why J.R. asks John again at the end, Are you a brother of the Night's Watch, or only a bastard boy who wants to play at war? Hmm. So good. It's so good. I also, it's fun to see that J.R. Mormont phrases it like this, this play at war. It reminds me again of Ned Stark, because, you know, J.R. Mormont is now... Ne- uh, John's other father figure, alright? Let's be real. And, like, he knows the difference between what it means to just play at war, to be a boy, and imagine, like, war is about, like, in the songs, and to have to actually do the hard work of it, put your life on the line, and the stakes of all of it. Yeah. The end of the chapter is John in his head and his heart asking his family to forgive him, and he acknowledges that the wall is his place now. And Jor says, go put on your sword. I love the way that ends. I'm sorry. Like, I know that we're ending on that line, but also, you know, put on your sword. It's not just any sword. It's the sword that Jor gave him. Yeah. It is a sword that will guard the knight, definitely. Mm-hmm. <sighs> it's a great, like, it sounds almost like an anti-climax in a way, because it's John not doing something big. However, this choice is huge. It's one of John's three tests that we talked about last yes. episode uh, that will probably lead to that fourth test where he dies. Because he fails it. And mm-hmm. I just think that while it's an anti-climax to have this big hero of the story character, you know, uh, turned down going to help his family and staying at this army colony north at the wall, it's not what you would do with your character, usually. It's not what you would do with your hero. Your hero would be out there trying to fight for the good, and John knows that he has to stay there. That is his role. I think it also very much works because, you know, when you think about how this is a larger story and series, this is just a perfect, the way that we have all of John's chapters here, it's it's a perfect exposition, right? Of setting up like, all right, here's who John is. Here are the lessons that he learns. And then here are all the different things that are testing him right now. What's he going to choose? And then that cements his sort of arc for the rest of his story, which... Yeah, and just to cover, we only have two more chapters before we hit the appendix in A Game of Thrones after John 9 happens, and that lightning round is very short, 
There's Catalan Eleven, where Brab Stark is proclaimed king in the north at River Run. And then, of course, as we said before, there's Daenerys Ten, where Daenerys pays for life with death and brings dragons back into the world. Yeah. That'd be the appendix. Yeah, which nothing, nothing exciting to see here. I'm sure there's stuff we could point out. Not today. But John's big moment. John's choice. You know, this is John's choice. This is his moment. Is he a man of the watch or is he a Stark? That's what the first book is. It's that exposition. It's setting things up because you see the way the rest of this book ends, right? It ends with Rob is proclaimed king in the north. It ends with Daenerys has gone through this arc of like learning to find her strength. And then she. it ends with now she's the mother of dragons. And that very much becomes her identity for the rest of the series. And Jon's is man of the night's watch. Yeah. So there's a lot of debate about it in the fandom. And here we see that they hold their vows very clearly and very carefully at the watch. And John obviously has his thoughts about how everybody breaks their vows and goes to Molestown. But will John's death actually absolve him of his vows? What do you think? I think the vows are bullshit. They make you swear and swear. I think they obviously can't control them having sex with women or bastards. So just leave him be. You know, he dies for the watch, literally for the watch. I don't, I don't know. I think, you know, he's probably, he's obviously going to leave, right? Something has Mm -hmm. to happen. But I do feel differently about what it means for his vows. Because, like, I just don't think it absolves him of it. I understand the argument that, like, oh, until death, right? And I guess he technically dies. But I just don't really like that death ends the vow loophole. Because I, I always just look at the 79 sentinels who have been placed into the wall. And granted, they were deserters. But... You know, now the whole point is even in death, they have to watch the wall. I don't know if it's like that. I don't mind what they did in the uh, show, which is the original source material that we're talking about, the books that were created off of it today. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. Um, I don't know if I actually mind it in the show. He has that talk with Sam. Is it with Sam or Ed? It's with one of them. Where yeah. he says, you know, my own brothers, they killed me. You know, I mean, I think at least death would absolve it. To the point that I don't think I would be doing anything. You know, I don't think I would go back for these people. I think I would uh, say, good luck. Bye. You guys murdered me. I don't know. I really like that he did that. He had the hangings. And then, of course, the the sword for Jan Osen. I think there's some good stuff before and some good stuff after. But I don't think he's going to stay in the Night's Watch. He will be absolved somehow. Even if it's just, fuck you, bitches. You killed me. You know? Yeah. I don't know if it's that he's going to be, like, absolved or not. And even if he is, to an extent, from being killed. And I don't, again, I also don't mind how they did in the show. Like, it makes sense. I just think it'll be more complicated because, what, now he goes back down to the rest of the North? Like, it's not, it's something that's not addressed in the show. But you can see in this chapter that it's something everyone's going to be skeptical of. They're going to be like, we all literally know you. You have a wolf. We all know that you're Ned Stark's bastard who went and joined the wall, okay? And you became Lord Commander. Everyone's fucking heard of it. Miranda Royce is fucking talking about it in the veil. Everyone knows. And people are going to be like, why are you here? Yeah, absolutely. Like, what the there has to be some sort on? of repercussions. Yeah, and I think it's going to make people, I don't know, distrust him a little bit more. Like, oh, you took a vow, dude. Like, how do we know you you can live up to whatever you're going to say for us? Even though we know it's a little different. Like, John's not going to want to stay there. Like, who wants to stick around with people who want you dead? Yeah, and I mean, on that expectation, I mean, also look at how 
that news will travel and what future people will think of him, right? Like, if he meets mm-hmm. Daenerys, what if that's one of the things she knows about him? That's true. Because it's hard to, like, just tell people, yeah, he came back from the dead. He's going to fucking believe that, all right? There's there's that. And also, he has there, – there's that entire narrative about bastardy. Mm-hmm. Especially you have, what, Ramsay Bolton Snow, Stilton, up there – being like, I'm Lord of Winterfell now, and I'm doing crazy shit. And everyone's going to be like, so, John, you left the Night's Watch? Are you going to be doing crazy shit, too? Yeah, it's a... Uh, the show adaptation, obviously, for him coming back is all we have. So mm-hmm. it's kind of made it a little yikes. But at the same time, I, I understand that it's going to definitely affect who he is and definitely affect what they say. And I'm also banking on John not coming back completely john as we've talked about before that you know only death can pay for life yada yada Mm -hmm. and he's gonna die and come back and he's not gonna be the boy he was that's that's the big kill the boy and let the man be born i mean obviously he came back wrong he can't even like fucking pet his dog okay like (laughs) he's wrong now uh i was talking with maester mary aka faceless maester on twitter and she was actually talking about how she wonders if a lot of John's storyline upon resurrection is going to be him trying to find or relearn his humanity after having lost it. Mm. I thought that was an interesting idea because I don't think we get that many clues of what John's storyline is in the books. And, you know, as Mary was saying, like, it seems as though a lot of the storyline John has in the show is probably Stannis's especially with that battle uh, for Winterfell against, against Ramsay Snow. So what what actually is in store. Yeah, and I do think, as I said, kind of on our season eight, episode four episode this week, uh, Stannis serves very much so as a subject of, you know, learning for both John and something that Danny's character should learn from. It, it serves as this literary way for us to see two ways a character can go and that fire consumes. And I think that John sees Stannis as this, you know, second child and sees the pain he suffered at never getting his due, and how it's made him be the righteous man he is to take the throne and, you know, kill the scum and all that. But when Stannis breaks, he breaks. Yeah. I mean, being, being a middle child is hard. I don't My, know is what, about I've, it. is what I've heard. Yeah, yeah. no, I was just like, we don't know. Just as like, only children. Yeah, as only children. <laughs> Fuck, we need other perspectives on this show. Do we? No. <laughs> I'm a bastard, um, so. Yeah, that's true. We have that. I'm just like, we don't have that diverse perspective of what's it like to have i don't know siblings (laughs) Siblings. i don't know (laughs) speaking though of siblings john feels very connected with his siblings over in winterfell but at the same time he's not uh, as much as he thinks that he has no place he also is portrayed to an extent at the beginning of the story as like somewhat of a lone wolf right he connects with Arya. And and Rob, but he's also just like, I'm a loner, I'm 16, no one can know my heart. (laughs) But just like it ends with him becoming a man of the Night's Watch, he goes from this loner who is pissing off all the other kids at the Night's Watch to being someone with like a lot of good friends and brothers. Absolutely. It's, you know, he's the lone wolf. He uh, has no pack. He's always been. It's just how Ghost was found. He was found separate mm-hmm. from the pack. Yeah, it is kind of sad though because I guess after this, and when he comes back to the castle, he still has those friends. But then he has this weird trajectory. He's loner, has friends, loner again. 
Yeah. I think that whole idea of John, especially, I do think the show's at least captured a little bit of him sending his friends away and doing his duty, mm-hmm. knowing what's best for everyone, but never actually caring or knowing who he is. Yeah, and I do think they do a good job of showing him as a loner in the show. Like, like even right now, he's all, like, broody, and he's like, I don't want to chug with all my friends. And I'm like, mm-hmm. chug, John, chug! We didn't see him chug. Sansa's out there drunk as hell. That was my favorite part. Like, she's yeah. in the background. She's like, I'm sure. She's just talking shit at John. Drunk Sansa's great. She's just like, I, uh... go on, I believe in you. And I'm like, this is actually a thing, turns out, that I wanted, that the show gave me that I didn't know that I wanted. I kind of loved that little bit. I was yeah. saying all the Danny stuff, but I digress. I We're talking about the show now. Sorry, oh, no. sorry, everyone. We're a book podcast, I swear. <laughs> we're a book podcast, in case you forgot. So when we do our show stuff, remember, we're a book podcast. Yeah, I mean, that's, and that's the end. We don't get anything else other than, you know, J.R. telling him, time to choose. And then the chapter ends. It's a cliffhanger. Well, kind of. Like, it, cl- it cliffhangs with, all right, so we're going to go with the rangers, go get your sword. I, I, It's just such a great, like, first episode kind of ending, even though it's not only an yeah. episode, it's a whole book. But Season then he's, book. And I guess people didn't have to wait um, that long for book two, which came out within, like, the next year or two. And then they're like, all right, we're going on the great ranging. <laughs> the greatest ranging of them all. Yeah, John finally gets that fucking adventure that he wanted. Well, our hero has to go on adventures, and we are going to be starting a Clash of Kings with John. We'll be back to jump into Clash in a week. Uh, if you're hearing this, it's likely the 17th of May when it's released for the public. $10 and up patrons do get it earlier than everybody else. They are VIPs, so check that out on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. Yes. And of course, you don't have to be a patron to listen to Girls Gone Canon. You could just subscribe to us and listen to our episodes. And those, of course, during show season come out every Tuesday for our Game of Thrones episodes. There's only two more of those left. Just like there are only two episodes left. But, you know, we have the rest of our lives to be together, everyone. And (laughs) we have our book episodes, these rereads that come out every Friday for the public, and you can find us on iTunes, on Spotify, on Acast, on Google Play, on Stitcher, on Podbean. Podbean, which is where everything is hosted, yet somehow I forgot it. (laughs) On Dancer, on Vixen. Yes. (laughs) Yes, and if you have any reactions to this week's episode, or you just want to chat, be sure to send us a message on Twitter, or at us on Twitter, at Girls Gone Canon, or you can send us an email. That is girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. And of course, thank you everyone for listening. And we have our, again, episode on prophecy coming out sometime this month, especially with a lot of great discussion about it as the show ends. Those go to our $5 and up patrons. As always, I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. Thanks, guys. Thank you, and goodbye. We did it.